Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, I'm going to give a shout out to our new Patreon supporters. That's Jackson Tingle, Kathleen Pignano, and New Jerusalem Studios. Thank you so much for your support. And if anybody else wants to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash liturgy. And just a quick reminder about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference, which is July 12th, 13th, and 14th. You can go to www.btransfigured.com to register for that. And this week we are talking about Gothic architecture because we had that um, terrible fire at Notre Dame Cathedral. So we decided to sit down and ask Dennis about what is Gothic architecture. So without further ado, episode 30 of season three of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. This week on Gothic Talk, we're talking about all things Gothic. <laughs> so, Dennis, dark corner. Tell me Don't about your look around your, the your favorite Gothic things. Well, you know, black lipstick, mm-hmm. a lot of piercings. Oh yes, black leather jacket. I go to Spencer's. <laughs> or no, what's the what is the Spencer? Or, no, what's the Goth store? Uh, oh, Journeys. Hot no. topic. Hot topic. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I used to go to Spencer's as a kid. So, you want to talk about Gothic architecture because I want to talk why? about Hot Topic. No, oh, is that some joke about burning? Down? No, Hot Topic is a is a goth. No, store. we're talking about Gothic architecture. Oh, what's it? Di- aren't they the same? But actually, it is interesting. Gothic, when it first was that word was invented, it was invented by the Italians who thought that it was the northern architecture and they were ruining all the good Roman stuff. Mm-hmm. So Gothic was a like a slang name for barbarian like people didn't know how to do things and then in the in the enlightenment after the enlightenment it was the synonym for dark you know catholic shadowy not lit up right so gothic novels as you know the 18th century thinks of them has nothing to do with the goths or the or medieval architecture it's about dark moody mysterious unenlightened you know so once the light of reason came into the world theoretically in the enlightenment the Middle Ages became the Dark Ages, right? That's how it was seen. And so things that were dark and mysterious, haunted houses, et cetera, they were all invented at that time. And now See, you have emo, which is like goth light. Right. I never do that because this always confused me. What little I do know about ar- gothic architecture, the is it has all these windows, right? And right. so why is gothic associated with, with darkness? darkness? Right. Hmm. Because you think about the That's whole it. point of gothic architecture was to have bigger windows, let more light in. There was a whole theology of light around it in the Middle Ages. But it was associated with the dark ages, the darkening of the mind to the scientific rationalists of the later period. Do I get to say flying buttress on this podcast? You can. Nice. You may. Say it again. Flying buttress. Flying buttress. It's like a mattress, but a buttress. (laughs) (laughs) If a mattress is for Matt, a buttress is for holding up gothic architecture. That's (laughs) That's what I was going to say. Yeah. So anyway, there's a guy associated with gothic architecture who was neither gothic nor architecture. His right. name was Abbot Suget. <laughs> neither gothic nor architecture. <laughs> I will yourself. gladly discuss. His name was Abbot Suget, S-U-G-E-R. So just like you don't say Virgil My- uh, Michelle, you don't say Abbot Sugar. You just don't do it. It's not. Uh, All right. Proper. He lived from 1081 to 1151. And, and he, he was, designed. Well, he was an abbot at Saint-Denis, 
in Paris. St. Denis? St. Denis, yes. My headless namesake, he, who was one of the, you know, the great patrons of France. And it's in the north side of Paris to this day. This church is still there, the, but it was the Royal Burial Church. So it wasn't just an abbey. It was like a really important abbey because it had royal patronage. And he was a very educated uh, guy and he was a statesman. He had the ear of the king and uh, also was associated with one of these, you know, cathedral schools in a sense or this, you know, abbot abbatial schools, I guess you'd call it. And so um, he was sort of a, a lowborn guy, but he apparently was very talented and um, became friends with the future Louis VI of France when he was in school. And then the king became king and he was like, hey, buddy, I know you, I trust you. And so he developed uh, Gothic architecture as we know about it. So there's a lot of stuff about architecture, but one of the really cool things about him is he wrote some stuff about his life or somebody under his tutelage wrote it. So he actually wrote two books, um, one called De Consecrazione of the Consecration and one of De Administrazione of the administration. administration of his time as abbot, right? So what did he do? Oh. He's like, hey, this is what I did. This is why. And then at the consecration of the church, St. Saint-Denis, this is what we did, and this is why, which almost never happens in the Middle Ages. You've been to this church? I have. And, it, you know, it was as the royal church, it, it got a lot of damage in the French Revolution because not only was it churchy, but it was also the king's church. And so they knocked all the heads off the statues and they got... How fitting for St. Denis. Well, actually, hey, I didn't even see that right nice, there. Jesse. You're welcome. A lot of the royal tombs were there and a lot of them were destroyed. But if you go there today, it's been pretty well restored and a lot of the tombs are, are still there. The entire neighborhood around it is is... Really, I'd say completely Muslim now. So it's this funny big Christian church in the middle of a big Muslim neighborhood, but it's still quite a glorious uh, church. So they didn't call it Gothic in their day. They called it modern work, believe it or not. It was called the Lavoro Moderno or something like that. Uh, it was only later in the Renaissance that the Italians said, oh, those people, they don't know how to proportion stuff. Remember, if you're a classical person and columns are people and people have the proportions of people, you know, like one time, one to hi- seven height in relation to width, suddenly you get this Gothic column that's like one to 30 and they're like, what kind of stupid stuff is that, right? So mm-hmm. what kind of people have those proportions? Sounds like something Crappy I've, modern I've, architecture. Yeah, <laughs> people don't know what they're doing, like the good old days. So there's very little Gothic architecture in Italy. The further south you get, there's even less. And there's a little bit of medieval Gothic architecture in Rome. Santa Maria Sopra Minerva in Rome is the only medieval Gothic church associated with the Dominican friars. But what's very interesting is, to me anyway, is not so much the history of Gothic, although there's that. Um, There's the standard line that our historians tell you. It's all the descriptions of Gothic architecture that there's a new interest in the buildings getting taller and what they call skeletonization of the walls. So imagine if you had to build a wall and you're just putting stone on top of stone, you would just have walls made of stones, right? The whole wall would be structurally supportive. You might have little windows, but you see, if you took the stones out, eventually you, the, wall, the walls would fall down because you're taking the walls out. However, if you could put the uh, wall support on columns, say, and they hold up the walls, you could knock out all the space between the columns and the thing would still stand up. And so in the Middle Ages, they, they developed the skeletonization. So all the weight of the roof would be brought to specific points. And then you could just make these big windows in between. Probably the pointed arch is the most typical thing that most people think of as, as the Gothic. Um, and gargoyles. And gargoyles, right? Well, that's, that's sort of romantic uh, imagination. But yeah, there were some in the Middle Ages uh, too. You remember the etymology of gargoyle, either of you? I think it came up in a podcast. Mm-hmm. Gar- Gargaman, uh, <laughs> king of the, the Smurfs. Goyles. Who's the guy with the Smurfs? Uh, oh. That was Gar- Gargaman, something like that, wasn't it? Yeah, something like Smurfs that. Smurfs are before your time. 
Um, they were my when I was a kid. The Smurf show was on on Saturdays. But see, that's just this memory. The word French uh, for throat is gorge, right? So it's uh, a gurgle is related oh, to yeah, it. Oh yeah, because it was gargle. the gutters. They would, the yeah, water. the water would come out the mouths of these demon-like figures, and that's how the word gargoyle came around. So mouthwash like related to gargle too. Yeah, a gargoyle gargles and gurgles, and it's gorge. Oh, so think nice. about a gorge, right? In the mountains, as water comes through it, right? It's a very similar kind of thing. Um, but there's a lot of classical revival in medieval architecture too. The Cathedral Amiens, for instance, is famous for having all these statues that look like ancient Roman statues. And uh, Abbot Suger, who we were just talking about, actually wanted to send people to Rome to collect all the Roman columns that had been fallen over from the ruins of Rome and bring them back to France to build his church. So they saw themselves in many ways the inheritors of the Roman tradition, but they were doing it in their own uh, way. And so it's very interesting. When you look at a lot of Gothic churches, you look at Notre Dame, you know, just burned. There are 12, I think 12, there might be more, big Corinthian columns running down the nave. And you see Ionic, you see Doric, uh, but Corinthian was the one used most often, and um, it's very classical. So sometimes people pit classical against Gothic. And I remember when I was in graduate school, we had uh, a graduate seminar, and it was called uh, gothic versus classical or gothic versus non-gothic or something so we all called it the battle of the styles are you going to the battle of the styles sounds class? like a hot topic it kind of was but the, the word gothic didn't exist then it was just the way you built things and that's what it does but i guess for our point of view um good old sujet in his book says a couple of stuff a couple of things that are kind of interesting uh to uh, look at Erwin, there was a guy named erwin panofsky who was a famous early 20th century medieval guy and he was german and so he knew all the ancient languages you know how scholars back then would learn latin and medieval latin and they'd read philosophy and theology and then they'd become an art historian um so his books are really really good on the theological side of um of building churches so Suzé, Suzé lived from 1081 to 1151 and you can see what it says there. What does it say there on that page, Jesse? Which part? In red? No, the title of the thing. Oh, sorry. Follow along with your finger. The book of Sujet Abbot of Dennis. <laughs> Abbot of Saint-Denis. Oh, okay. Hold on. On what was done? On what was done under his, his administration. administration. Right. So de administrazione. I got it right. You got it right. And so he says why he's doing this and it's the memory of posterity and stuff. But if you actually um, turn around here and look at and read this with theological eyes, he talks about the church's decoration and he's talking about how they tore down this old church that used to be there that had, and part of it was built by really famous people, some saints and some, you know, whatever. And he, and he tears it down because he thinks he can do something uh, better. Uh, but before he says, we hired the best painters from different regions and caused these walls to be repaired and becomingly painted with gold and precious colors. Uh, so you think about a Gothic church today and you think it's all gray inside. When you actually mm -hmm. hear from the guy who was there, he says, I had it painted with gold and precious colors. So precious colors, I think, means the colors of gems, you know, precious stones, so blues, reds. If you've ever seen the Saint-Chapelle inside in France, it's all painted all the way up, even though there's lots of uh, stained glass. And he said, I did this all the more gladly because I wished to do it even while I was a pupil in school. How about that? Can you imagine? You're sitting there you're like a kid in class. Someday I'm going to repaint the cathedral. That sounds like something you would do as a pupil in school. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so even in his early days, he's talking about stuff. And he talks about the dedication of uh, the church. And there was a part that was built by Charlemagne in the old church, and he actually tore it down to build something better. So you can imagine. Wow. As uh, bold. We tore Real down bold. a certain edition asserted to have been made by Charlemagne. 
and so he's kind of wondering, like, could you imagine that today? Like, if you had something built by Charlemagne, you're like, oh, we can do better than Charlemagne. Boom, off it goes. Right, it's so like it's, whitewashing the Mona Lisa and saying, eh, let's try it again. Unless you can paint something better than the Mona Lisa, right? But they don't have this historical consciousness that we have that like every age has its perfection and, and we can't ever repeat it. They were just like, yeah, Charlemagne was good, but we can do better. You know, the great piazza in front of St. Peter's in Rome was full of buildings and they had to tear them all down to make that piazza, mm. including some really significant buildings by famous architects, but that's what they thought back then. So if, they, if the historic preservationists were in charge, we would not have the current Church of Saint-Denis or the piazza in mm. front of St. Peter's. So if it's a crummy building, even if it's a pretty good building, if you can build something better, I say, take a picture, tear it down. Man, <laughs> I am a barbarian, am I not? But listen to this. So he's talking about this one chapel at the church, and he says... Uh, this place is now that it's been dedicated is hallowed. Uh, and those who go there to serve God as though they were already dwelling in a, in a degree in heaven while they sacrifice. Tell me what you think is he's talking about there. The church has been so convenient for celebrating the divine rites that those who serve there are as though they are already dwelling in a degree in heaven while they sacrifice. That's a, that's a foretaste right there, like you a super foretaste. got it, right? So he's not saying the word church is a sacrament of the heavenly thing, but in a sense, he's getting at that point that through the material things of the world, um, that stuff is coming. And at this point in time, that's an okay thought. Like people didn't think, like they weren't iconoclasts at that point where they're saying material is bad. No, they're okay. trying to say material can render the things of heaven nice. present. and. One of his famous descriptions is they made these doors that were cast in bronze and then covered in gold. So the chapter 27 is on the cast and gilded doors. And he talks about what's in there. Um, and he says, with great cost and must, much expenditure for the gilding as was fitting for the noble porch. Right. So the porch of a church is the gateway into the sacrament of heaven. So it had to be made of something that was fitting for that. And he says, we put mosaic, uh, we left some of the mosaics on the old ones, though contrary to the modern custom, which is very interesting. So, you know, the Byzantine uh, generations or the um, uh, Romanesque periods before, they might have had mosaics, but now at this point, they've developed a whole sculptural system over church doors. And he realizes they're, they're not modern. It's not the way we do it anymore, but he left them there out of, sort of veneration for what was there before. So even though he tore down Charlemagne's doors, he <laughs> left some of the old mosaics uh, and, and actually made some new ones uh, to match. And he talks about some other stuff. Now, here is the quote that he put on the door itself. See if you can figure this out. Uh, for the splendor of the church that has fostered and exalted him, he's talking about Saint-Denis here, Suget has labored for the splendor of this church, giving thee a share of what is thine, O martyr, Dennis. Uh, he praised through thee to pray that he may obtain, may obtain a share of paradise. And so he's saying, hey, Saint-Denis, you're in heaven, but we're, we're taking a share of your glory in heaven and making it knowable through these doors and asking that you pray for us. Right? It's the basic column. Uh, church stuff. But here's where a little theology comes in. If you know your medieval theology, how are you both on your um, pseudo Dionysius, the Areopagite? I'm feeling a little bit, uh, not good on that right now. How about kind you? Of, uh, pretty you, pseudo. You, I think. you ever read, uh, Dionysius? Just the pseudo part. Okay. Just, right. That's, I'm the, the, that's the guide of wine. Well, Dionysus was the Greek god of wine. Yeah, but then there is a guy mentioned in the new Testament who is on the Areopagus. When Paul goes there to preach, his name is Dionysius, Dennis, and he's convinced by Paul, and he becomes a Christian. And he becomes the first bishop of Athens. So Dionysius, and he's got this buddy woman named Damaris, and they become like the head of the church, so to speak, mm. in 
Athens. And so Dionysius, the Areopagite, right, because he's on the Areopagus, which is this place where the philosophers would talk in, in Greek, in Greece, in Athens. Uh, <laughs> then Paul goes there. They say, you're already worshiping the unknown God. Let me tell you who the God is that you're worshiping because you don't know. And Dionysius is convinced. And so that later, there's this other guy who writes a book about the celestial hierarchy and the, the emanations of God. And it's kind of this great high theology of how God communicates to us, who wrote it under the name Dionysius the Areopagite. But they found out in the 19th century that that was not the same guy. So he became pseudo Dionysius the Areopagite. Oh. Okay, so there were a lot of Dennis's floating around. Uh, the one who lost his head, the Roman martyr, but then the one on the Areopagus, and then this other guy. Anyway, but if you know the theology of the pseudo one, this is what uh, Sujay writes on the door. If, if, whoever you are, if you seek to extol the glory of these doors, marvel not at the gold and the expense, but at the craftsmanship. Bright is the noble work, but being nobly bright, the work should brighten the minds so that they travel through the true lights to heaven, heaven. <laughs> to the true light where Christ is the true door. Yeah, heaven. Yeah, so that's right. So Nailed it. Uh, the dull mind rises to truth through that which is material, and seeing this light is resurrected from its former submersion. Now, if you have any sacramental theology at all, you know what he's saying, right? If you look at this door, don't just look at the expense, but look at the craftsmanship, so what we did, human will. Bright is the noble work. So bright doesn't just mean, you know, it's gaudily painted or has light bulbs over it. It means something of the revelation of the mind of God is coming through, or the Holy Spirit is often compared to the light. It makes things intelligible. Um, and it should brighten the minds that they travel through the true lights. That was the medieval way of talking about the stars. So you actually like, carried through the lights in the sky to the true light, which is Christ, where he is the true door. And so the dull mind, that's our fallen mind, rises through that, which is material stuff, right? This door made of bronze and gold and is resurrected uh, from its former submersion. This is not at all what I think of like when I think Gothic, like you, like you said in the beginning, this is bright and beautiful. Right. Enlightening. Yes. What they thought Mm. they were doing was better than the previous generations, making a building that would show the glory, the richness, the complexity, and the colorfulness, and the encounterability of the things of heaven through architecture with this uh, sacramental principle. In fact, he calls the church the chamber of divine atonement, which is interesting. So where God's atonement work, Christ's atonement work actually happens. Oh, you think of the day of atonement too, and the going into the Holy of Holies. I wonder if- Right, that was the high priest who would go into the Holy of Holies only once a year on the day of atonement in the Jewish uh, temple tradition. And he says the upper choir, so that's where the high altar would be, where um, the victim of our redemption should be sacrificed in secret without disturbance by the crowds. So if you go into a Gothic church, oftentimes you'll see this part in the back that has choir stalls around it, and there might be a wall across the front with an enclosed choir. And so he's talking about making this where this chamber of divine atonement could happen without the, the crowds uh, making a lot of noise. So Notre Dame had an enclosed choir up at the front with the choir stalls and a, and a wall across the front and had these spiral staircases where cantors would go up in the top and sing from it. That was taken out uh, sometime after Trent, and so it hasn't been there for a long time. So it would probably would have burned uh, had, it been, had it been there. He talks about the crypt under the church too, and he says it's elaborated with uh, the variety of so many arches and columns 
Uh, can you see he's my hero uh, already? Mm-hmm. So many arches and columns. Columns uh, is like Dennis's love language. <laughs> kind of is. <laughs> <laughs> kind of is. Um, and he's he's talking about these wonderful uh, things and where he wants to make stuff out of gems. But, you know, if you're in medieval France, like, where do you get gems? It's not like you can say, oh, we have diamond mines in South Africa. And he wants to do different things. And he says... By this miracle of God, this gem dealer came to Paris, and we were able to buy gems that we never even knew um, that would be available uh, to us. And so he makes a lot of um, discussion of this, the altar frontal and the upper choir. Do you know what a frontal is? I do not. Isn't it hanging in front of the altar? It was, yeah. Sometimes you see them in Anglican churches to this day. It's like a fabric that hangs over the front of the altar. Oh, like Um, like the veil, temple veil. Kind of like a veil, but like a like a tabernacle veil, except it's big and it stands in front of the altar. So you could have um, ones of those that are metal and they're permanent. So imagine like the metal covering of an icon where you just see the face of Mary through it and it has little gems all over it. So he's talking about making this and he says he used 42 marks of gold and then hyacinths, rubies, sapphires, emeralds, topazes, an array of different pearls and that rich people took the rings off their fingers and out of the love for the holy martyr, the, the gold stones and precious pearls of rings be put into their panels. So what are we saying here? Rich people making rich people stuff? How do you do the biblical interpretation? No, we're, t- we're literally taking ourselves and putting them in the, in the walls and the fixtures of the church. Right, we so are we're the, sacrificing. Yeah, we're the stones. If we're, well, say more about stones. We're the living stones. Right. And they come all the way back to the high priest of the temple with the 12 stones. And mm-hmm. then heaven is described to being made of stones. So if heaven is made of these gems and gems are us, and then you make an altar that's covered in gems and radiance. There's tons of meaning in there. There's foretaste of this glory of the heavenly Jerusalem. That it's like, we that's like a five in. taste of heavenly glory. Uh, well, yeah. Or six. You can <laughs> talk about this in a Marxist way. It's like, oh yeah, the rich people controlled everything and blah, 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 blah. And the, how many people mm-hmm. could you have fed with that? Um, but that's not what he's uh, talking about. How do you in- let the poor people encounter golden gems? They'll never see gems probably in their life in this day, but they can go to the church and delight in the same glory that the rich people could because it's taken out of private hands and put in public hands. So he puts a verse on the panel. He says, great Dennis, not me, mm-hmm. but he does spell it with one N, great, which is comma, the right Dennis. way. <laughs> Open the door of paradise. Uh, mayest thou who has built a new dwelling for thyself through us. So he's talking to hmm. St. Dennis on Denis. And he says, you've built a new church for yourself through, through us, us. <laughs> right? So the saint wants this, right, for the, the glory of God, and he's using the human beings to uh, do it. Uh, Cause us to be received in the dwelling of heaven and to be sated at the heavenly table instead of the present one. So it's on the altar, right? So he's saying, help us get to heaven to the full feast instead of this sacramental feast, as good as it is. That which is signified pleases more than that which signifies Chris, that should be your job. That, that which, which is signified pleases more than that which signifies. Mm. What are we saying there? Yeah, that, that which is signifying is the the outward expression that you can see. The earthly stuff, the yeah. earthly stuff, but that which is signified is the real reality who is Christ. That's more precious. There's your res and sacramentum, right? Yeah. So the reality is this invisible, intangible fullness of God's glory, and then somehow we encounter that through stuff. So he's saying... I've got gold and gems and altar and the Eucharist, which are great. But the fullness of that reality, as well as it's being signified here, is more than that. And that comes right out of Vitruvius, by the way, which is the ancient document on architecture that uh, they would have known in the Middle Ages. So this committee that's getting together, I know you're talking about uh, Saint-Denis there, but the um, the committee that's getting together to 
consider the rebuilding of Notre Dame should probably be reading this material. Well, yeah, I mean, this is not about Notre Dame, right? right. This is about Saint-Denis, but it's the same city, roughly the same time. If they want to know what's the theology of a church building, none of it says, oh, St. Denis, thank you for helping us make the most avant-garde, ar- avant-garde architecture so that we can become famous as architects and you know be the ones who invented the thing that offends everybody, right? That's not their goal at all, right? Mm-hmm. Their goal is to make a heavenly, encounterable thing in the in the earth and let people therefore know what heaven is and be encounter it so there's a lot of stuff in here you know that's really good there are some points where there's more theology uh, rather than other others but there's probably one that's worth um talking about here which is his famous anagogical principle you know what what anagogy is chris you know what analogy is well, anagogy is things that speak of heaven and leading us to heaven. Mm-hmm. Didn't you used to date a girl named Anagogy? Anagogy? She was Anna Diplosi's <laughs> oh, cousin. Oh, right. yeah. Got it. And, yo, Anna. That's Mr. and Mrs. Gaji. Mr. Gaji's <laughs> daughter, Anna. <laughs> hey, Mr. Gaji. That, yeah. That's a better joke than right. mine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they actually are related etymologically and yeah, biologically. In, in Greek, again means to lead, right? So... Um, what are you leading out of, right? Anna is sort of out of or the opposite of. Um, so you're leading out of yourself. This is what he says. Um, he's contemplating the building and, you know, the radiance of it. And he, then he quotes from Scripture, Book of Revelation, every precious stone was thy covering, sardis, sardius, topaz, jasper, chrysolite, onyx, the barrel, sapphire, carbuncle, and the emerald. And he says, to those who know the properties of precious stones, it becomes evident that none is absent from the number of these, but that they may abound most copiously. And here's when he talks about what my graduate school professor called the medieval acid trip, because he didn't understand anagogy. But this is what Abbot Sujay says. Thus, when out of my delight in the beauty of the house of God, the loveliness of the many colored gems has called me away from external cares and worthy meditation has induced me to reflect, transferring that which is material to that which is immaterial on the diversity of sacred virtues. Then it seems to me that I see myself dwelling, as it were, in some strange region of the universe, which neither exists entirely in the slime of the earth nor entirely in the purity of heaven. And by the grace of God, I can be transported from this inferior to that higher world in an anagogical manner. Hmm. That's pretty deep. Yeah, I know. It's pretty deep. What did I just say? You should have told that to your professor. (laughs) Well, I didn't know that that at the time. Through his church, he is taken out of himself in the the slime of this world, and he's taken back to the place from which he came and which he was meant to dwell eternally back into heaven. Exactly. Right. So... You go through your life and you have your boring living room and your car and the, you know, everything in your life. It's good, but it's not great. Then you go into this church. You go to San Marco in Venice where every square inch is covered in mosaic or the new cathedral in St. Louis. And you just go, whoa, where am I? You forget mm. yourself for a while and your mouth opens and your jaw drops and you drool, right? Because you look like an idiot, but you don't <laughs> care. And you're carried, as he would say, from external cares and reflecting on this material to encounter that which is immaterial and all this, the virtues and you find yourself as he says in some some strange region of the universe which is neither here in the slime of the earth nor entirely in the purity of heaven so that's a definition of what it's encountering the things beyond you beyond the the slime of the earth the stuff of the earth but not quite fully heaven yet already but not yet already but not, yes that's the 
sacramental worldview. So when a sacrament is really highly, when it's working that way, you're drawn out of yourself and led to the higher things. And that's what this anagogical manner is. You know that other line he has, I think is so good, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, about the temple is still under construction. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. us, right? The temple yeah, of Christ. Yeah. It seems to say the same thing. There, There is a heaven, which is a temple, uh, but it's still waiting to for us to be chiseled and fit in. Right, it's like a blueprint, like the design is drawn, but the workers are still out there cutting the stones and putting all the stones in the right place. And so that's what a cathedral does. A Gothic cathedral takes a lot of little pieces and assembles them into this glory of heaven that he's talking about. He speaks, you know, just one last thing here about um, the vessels in the church, because he not only made buildings, he made uh, chalices. His chalice is actually in the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. Probably got ransacked in the Reformation or not the Reformation in the Enlightenment or the Reign of Terror or something after the French Revolution and somebody sold it to somebody. Now it's in the National Gallery and it's this beautiful stone, two-handled chalice and the cup of the chalice is actually made of a semi-precious stone. It's not gold. Uh, It's I think it's sardonyx. The sardonyx was one of the gems that the high priest wore in the temple on his shoulders that represented the sun and the moon. So sardonyx is a biblical stone, and then the chalice is made of that biblical stone. It may have been gold-leafed on the inside, I don't remember. Um, but he talks about in the Temple of Solomon how they use golden cups for the blood of bulls and goats. And he says, how, if that's how they did it for the red heifer, the bulls and goats, how much more must golden vessel, vessels, precious stones, and whatever is valued among all created beings be laid out for the reception of the blood of Christ? It's a valid question. Yeah. If this is the most precious substance ever, right, the blood of Christ, how does the vessel actually uh, make that knowable uh, to the world? It's a blood vessel. It is a precious blood vessel. Uh Um, Uh And so um, he's talking about the temple and how he knew what the temple uh, meant. And this homage of the outward ornaments of sacred vessels uh, would be equal, at least, to the holy sacrifice with all inner purity and all outward splendor. I think that's a really good liturgical principle. Inner purity and outward splendor. Because if you have inner... That's what my wife says about me. Really? Oh, good for you. You know, if your inner purity isn't there and you're just like, ooh, I want outward splendor so people know how rich I am, right? That's not right. If you have inner uh, purity and outward, I don't know what you call it, mediocrity, then it's not show... Like like you do. Uh, It's more like... The uh, I know what it is, but I'm not doing it. I'm too cheap to pay for it. I'm not letting the sacramentality of this thing come through. Mm-hmm. Um, so Notre Dame, church burns, roof burns. How do you decide how to rebuild it? Like you said, Chris, read Evet Sujet and find out what is the nature of the church building? What is the quiditas, the wetness of it and its ontological being? And then that should give you the right understanding of things. Nice. Chris, what did you want to add to this uh Topic? Nope. <laughs> I'm leaving in 10 minutes. And one last time, flying buttress. Okay. Oh, yeah. We should answer a question. Should we talk about flying buttress? Yeah, yeah. Just explain what, what a flying buttress is. Okay. How do you hold up the wall if the wall's gone? Um, with a flying buttress. Which a flying buttress, right. So flying buttress is like an arm attached to a big pole outside the church. And so the, the downward pressure of the roof... Uh, comes down and outward, and so the flying buttress. So it makes the wall want to buckle out, or something. Right, exactly. Right? So okay. imagine you were standing next to the wall, and you had your palm against the wall with your arm out straight, because the wall is ready to fall down, and you're just holding it there. You're actually pushing back inward the force that the outward movement of the buckling is moving outward, and you're holding it there. But you'd be a standing buttress. 
Right. There are such <laughs> things as buttresses that are right up against the wall. The flying buttress is many feet away from the wall, and then there's this little arm that goes and pushes back there. So that way you can get rid of all the wall for windows and let all this gem-like light come in and the gem-like radiant stained glass and still have the roof not falling. I think I read about uh, Notre Dame is that one of the more severe problems with that building was the buttresses were all weakening. And so they were talking about having to build this scaffolding up and around, but it couldn't really rest on top of the church because they couldn't afford to have any more weight on top of the uh, church. Yeah, they didn't have... Partly because the buttresses were... Right, they didn't have buttresses. advanced physics at that time, so it wasn't... No, no, really... I, I mean, like, currently, right before the fire, right. is they were concerned with any more weight on it. Right. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. The medievals okay. sometimes didn't always build the amount of, you know... Uh, stone buttress that you needed to hold up the weight mm. you had. Sometimes they fell down. Sometimes they overbuilt. There's a church in San Francisco called St. Dominic's Gothic Church from the early 20th century, and they had an earthquake out there. And they actually put on it these kind of flying buttressy things made of steel to make it survive the next earthquake. So it's the still the kind of way to hold up things. Things stand up when the up and the down are the same, and the side to side is the same. And sometimes if there's more down than up, you got to give a little more up. And if there's more out, you got to give a little more in. It's you just, know what I'm saying? It's just like Coolio says, you got to gotta get up to get down. Pretty much. All right. With What's those the- words, Abbot Suget, Sandini. <laughs> Abbot Suget. You just Suget decapitated Abbot Suget. And just Coolio, like they knew what was up. Yep. And therefore, <laughs> down. All right. Let's answer a question. I'm out of here. <laughs> so you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here, but you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Hello, Liturgy guys. I love the show. I was recently asked to be a godfather for my nephew's baptism along with two other godfathers and three other godmothers. Is it possible to have more than one of each a godmother and a godfather for a baptism? Nope. <laughs> That's it? Nope. All right. Nope. Done. Oh, wait, but why? Oh, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, the answer is no, because the code of canon law says so. Because canon that's the way it is. Canon what? Eight seven three. Mm. So eight seventy three and eight seventy four, and a couple others on either side of that speak about sponsors or godparents. Uh, Petrinus, somebody told me, is the name, uh, and it's the same for uh, confirmation. And for baptism. 873 says, there is to be only one male sponsor or one female sponsor or one of each. Is that what they call a godparent, a sponsor for baptism? It's the same word. Uh, the, the, the Latin word is petrinus. Okay. okay. Um, yeah, so sometimes it's rendered sponsor, sometimes godparent. 
Yeah, my my wife is Filipino, and so mm-hmm. I don't know what Lorenzo is, but I, that has been a thing that I've noticed in her family as well. And sometimes it's like eight of each. Yeah. And I don't know if there's like a primary or not, but I don't know if that's a cultural thing. Yeah, well, I think even if it is, right, so some there are some places in the code and elsewhere where it will say, so the Code of Canon Law, this one is from 1983, that's the most recent version, and it will say directly in the code that the local conference of bishops is to determine X, Y, or Z more specifically. But generally, it's universal law. So I don't think that any cultural provision, whatever that culture might be, would allow for anything besides what Canon 873 says. One male, one female, or one of each. Okay. So what I wonder what this pure speculation, I think that when, when there are witnesses for marriage, there have to be two witnesses. Now, you could have two female witnesses, two male witnesses. Uh, you know, they have to be above the age of reason. Mm-hmm. They have to be capable of witnessing to the consent. But I think what um, kind of the best man and the... The bridesmaid. It's been a long time since I got maid of honor. Maid of honor. That's right. Those are probably the principal witnesses uh, at the at the wedding. But then you have a bridal party that has others involved. So I wonder if there is something similar going on in this case of the baptismal hmm. godparents. The the priest or deacon. I am quite sure would enter into the baptismal register only the actual God father and or God mother and wouldn't be recording six or eight different names. That's what, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. But it can be confusing though, right? Because it's supposed to be clear who the Godfather or God mother is. And if these eight people think that they're the godmother, I mean, uh, it, it doesn't help. They can the, be the very situation. confusing, especially for the child. Yeah. All right. Lorenzo, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.